All right, Blenville, we're going to play Bible Jeopardy, where your answer must be in the form of a question. So here it is. What would your question be to this answer? Here it is. This man was the 13th apostle. apostle. Well, the question is, who's Matthias? Poor Matthias, he starts out as a disciple of Jesus and he rises to the top and becomes the apostle who replaces Judas. And yet, few people remember him. In fact, in the text, in Acts 1, he appears just as quickly he disappears. Besides Acts chapter 1, where else does Matthias's name even appear in Scripture? I couldn't find anywhere. And yet, while Matthias may be little more than a footnote in the grand story of Scripture, how he is selected to be an apostle shows the church how to be a discerning body of believers. So let's take a look at this unusual story in Acts chapter 1. With Judas's death, the disciples were down to 11 apostles. Now, why must there be 12 apostles? Wouldn't it be possible for the 11 apostles to carry out what Christ commanded? Why are 12 necessary? When you look through Scripture, 12 are necessary because 12 is an important number in Scripture. 12 has great significance. Did you know that the number 12 is used 187 times in the Bible? Let me give you just a quick list of how it's used. There are 12 historical books in the Bible. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. 12. There are 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. They are called minor not because they are not because they're less important than the major prophets, but due to their size being considerably smaller. How about the explorers? There were 12 spies sent into the land of Cana, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 23. There were 12 men who laid 12 stones in the building of a monument to the Lord in Joshua chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, in the book of Chronicles, it contains 12 great high priests. Uh, let's jump to the New Testament. Jesus' very first words were spoken at what age? 12, Luke chapter 2, verse 42. The new Jerusalem, which descends out of the heavens, it has 12 gates made of pearls, which are manned by 12 angels. And each of the gates has been named after one of the 12 tribes of Israel. You see, God used the number 12 and he gave it meaning. God used the number 12 and he gave it purpose. So what's its purpose? 12 represents, in most cases, the number of perfection and authority. So what is the significance of 12 in our text this morning? It's this. When the number of 12 is placed on a people, 12 tribes, 12 priests, 12 apostles, it represents God giving his authority to humanity. God giving his authority to humanity. So in Acts 1, once Jesus ascends into heaven, it is important for the church to see that God has given his authority to the apostles. And this is why it is good and appropriate to get the apostles back to 12. Now, with Judas's death, there's a position to fill. So, 
What do the apostles do? Well, the 11 apostles polled the 120 disciples to see what they thought the strength and weaknesses were of the apostles and what they wanted, what the 120 wanted in the new leader that was to replace Judas. So the apostles compiled the results of their survey, and once it was compiled, they put it in a beautiful, glossy profile, and they mailed it out to the candidates that they thought fit their profile. And so they invited the candidates for the position of apostle to submit resumes and essay responses to six questions. And after a series of phone interviews, they traveled around Judea to hear each candidate teach or preach in their home church. Well, the process continues and they grade each of their candidates by their preaching style, their administrative abilities, and their pastoral presence. They put candidates on a ballot and then they let the disciples vote. Man, it took two years, but finally they had... That's not how it happened, is it? No, the early church didn't select church leaders that way. That's not how they did it. So what did they do instead? Well, look at the text. Look at Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Here's what actually happened. Acts 1, 21. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. You see, the new apostle, it can't be just any person. He must be a male. And the new apostle must have been with the disciples from the time John was baptized by G, or time Jesus was baptized by John until the day that Jesus returned to heaven on Ascension Sunday. Well, as you can see, this is going to be a pretty short list of candidates. They have the names of two, two people to consider, Barsabbas and Matthias. And then they cast lots so that it would not be the apostles who chose, but God doing the choosing. Isn't that interesting? There's a preacher by the name of Rick Morley, and he makes an interesting observation when he says this. In scripture, biblical leadership was never based on resumes or experience. Uh, think about it. God called Moses an 80-year-old shepherd who had murder on his record. God called Aaron, who had great experience making little golden calf statues. He called David, the youngest son, and also a shepherd. He called Mary, a young woman who was nothing but a little girl. He called Peter, a fisherman. He called Simon, the zealot, a revolutionary. And he called Paul, a legalist known as a Pharisee. You see, in Scripture, God never seems to call those with great resumes. He doesn't seem to call the dashing and the young, the energetic person with 20 years of experience who can speak five languages. God prefers ordinary people to do his work. God prefers ordinary people to do his work. You see, discernment is not about looking for the brightest and the best. Discernment is about letting God do the choosing. Catch that again. Discernment is about letting God do the choosing. 
Now, as complicated as this sounds, consider also that it was 120 disciples who were seeking to discern God's decision on the next apostle. I mean, can you imagine if this morning, as a congregation of 120 people, if Blenville had to decide on where we were all going to go for lunch after church? And just think of the diversity in that 120, the diversity of tastes, diet restrictions, family budget restraints, convenience, uh, options for the kid, kids. How easy would such a decision be for 120 people to make on where to eat? Well, can you imagine deciding how to move forward after Judas had died? That would be even more challenging. Will Willimon calls this gathering of disciples in Acts 1 an unusual community. Because after all, the group is made up of 120 believers that include not just uh, Jesus' surviving disciples, but also the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. It included an eclectic bunch of people with various needs and preferences. See, I love this first chapter of Acts because it contains an account of the very first congregational meeting in church history. And what is most surprising is the early church did not have any instruction from Jesus on how to fill Judas's position as an apostle. I have no idea, no idea who told the 120 that they needed 12 apostles to maintain the continuity through the New Testament with the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. But somehow the 120 disciples discerned the need. You see, I think the point of this text, I think the point of the text is to show how the church was given the responsibility of discernment. See, as a church, Blenville is to consider the challenges we face and discern with the Holy Spirit how Blenville should move forward. You see, we're to follow the example of the 120 disciples in Acts 1. Now, mind you, the elders of the church bear the most weight in this, discerning the way forward, though that's something everyone in Blenville is to seek. We all seek to understand it together. So how do we discern what God is doing? Well, discernment begins with this, by receiving the Holy Spirit through baptism into Jesus Christ. You gotta have the Holy Spirit. John 16, 13 says, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will teach you what is yet to come. We gotta have the Holy Spirit. Second, discernment is practiced by separating truth from error and right from wrong. You see, discernment is like the physical senses, your eyesight, your smell, your taste. Everyone in the church is to discern what God is doing. Now, it is true. There are certain believers who are given the gift of discernment, as 1 Corinthians 12, 10 tells us. But discernment is a skill that all believers are to develop. All believers are to become effective in using discernment. You see, like shooting free throws in basketball, you will never become good at discernment if you only take a shot once every 30 years. Now, as Christians, we are to develop this skill. That's why the psalmist prays. We should pray with him when he says, teach me good judgment and knowledge. Psalm 119, verse 66. But what is this discernment? Discernment is not a game of hide and seek with God's wisdom. 
where wisdom hides really well, and we look everywhere trying to find the wisdom. No, wisdom does not hide. In fact, turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 9, Proverbs 9. If you look at Proverbs 9 verse 1, it shows two voices that are calling out to us. Proverbs 9.1 says this, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine, and she has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in town. You see, wisdom has built the house, and she invites humanity to dine with her. Now, there's a purpose for this meal. There's a purpose for this dining. Look at verse 4. Whoever is simple... Let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat up my bread, drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. What does this tell us about wisdom? Wisdom is public. It's not hiding. It is crying in the streets. I'm here. Listen to me. I know the way. And notice how her house is described her house has seven pillars, and it's representing the perfect insight people will find if they enter wisdom's home and learn wisdom's lessons. The ignorant and immature are transformed at wisdom's banquet table. So wisdom isn't a secret. It is readily available. But let's go down to Proverbs chapter 9, verse 13. We hear another voice that competes with wisdom's invitation. Look at verse 13. It says this. The woman folly is loud. It's the idea of being obnoxious, that she's animated just to get attention. She, she can't be ignored. It also says she is seductive. There's no moral restraint with foolishness. And she knows nothing. She is ignorant, but she wants to give you her foolish advice. Now notice what it says. She sits at the door of her house and she takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Listen to what she says, verse 16. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense. Now notice what foolishness is serving at her banquet table. It says this. She says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. See, if, food eat, if eating food stolen from others isn't bad enough, look at the dinner, dinner guests that you will be eating with in the home of foolishness. Verse 18 says, But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. You see, in the home of foolishness, you eat with the dead because that is what foolishness leads to, death. Now catch the difference between the two. Wisdom gives life. Foolishness gives death. Now we understand why discernment is so important. Life from wisdom or death from foolishness. They rarely come from just making one major decision alone. Most of the time, life or death is a result from little decisions that we make on a daily basis that have a cumulative effect a cumulative effect that leads to life or death. Does that make sense? In the Disciples of Spiritual Discernment, Tim Chalice defines discernment this way. 
Discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. Listen to that again. Discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. Truth from error. It's talking about what we believe. Right from wrong, uh, it's referring to how we live. And that just makes sense because what we believe to be true determines the action of our living. Discernment grows by practicing it, practicing it in the decisions that we make every day. So here's the third thing. Discernment grows by giving Scripture authority in your life. You see, it's in Scripture that we find out what is right and wrong. The only way to identify error in our personal thinking, the only way to identify error in the world's thinking is by knowing the truth as God, God's word explains it. The wise believe the convictions of the Bible and they follow them. They don't rationalize away the truth of God's word. Wise people know scripture. Fourth, discernment is developed by asking God, for wisdom. James tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Man, that is a prayer that God answers all the time with a yes. If you want wisdom, God says yes, here it is. So are you praying for wisdom? Finally, discernment is developed by regularly talking with wise people, learning from their stories in making wise decisions. Proverbs 13, verse 20 tells us, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So, if you spend most of your time with people who make foolish choices, foolishness will take root in your thinking. Make sure you are regularly getting an intake of wisdom from people, I would suggest, with white in their hair. You see, their years of life experience will be a rich source of insight. I'd like to close this sermon with this illustration. Our pets, our dogs and cats, they recognize the voice of their master and they learn quickly to do what they are commanded to do. Charlie Frank raised the elephant, Nita, from birth and, and he trained her as a circus performer. On retirement, the elephant was given to the San Diego Zoo. And after the elephant and trainer had been apart from each other for 15 years, a television crew filmed their reunion. Frank called Nita from about 100 yards away. And immediately, after 15 years, Nita the elephant came to Charlie and he, she performed her old routines on command. You see, her experience gave her the power to recognize his voice. Now, as humans, we don't always do as well as animals in voice recognition, but humans can learn to recognize God's voice just as they learn to recognize the color red with its various shades and characteristics and to distinguish it from blue or yellow. You see, a musician learns by experience to distinguish a minor key from a major one simply by hearing a melody. We Learn by experience to recognize the truth from error and right from wrong.
May Blenville be an Acts 1 church as together we discern how the Holy Spirit is moving us forward. Until next week, God bless.